Welcome to Makers Chat, a podcast community for creatives. I'm your host, Danielle Kaminsky, artist, maker, and educator from Spartanburg, South Carolina. Join me as we share our stories and explore the topics that are most important to creative entrepreneurs and makers. So, hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Makers Chat. So for the month of June, we are going to be talking about value in the handmade community, the value of our work, the value of our time, the value that we place on ourselves and on everyone else. And of course, I have my friend Crystal Molina here with me again this month, helping me introduce the topic. Hello. Hello. It's me. (laughs) How are you doing? I am very good today. Good. I'm happy to be here with you and all of you listening. Thank you. Yes. So I don't know, something that I've always thought about, because one of the questions that I get the most often um, at Vintage Warehouse and then just talking with other makers is, but how do you, how do you know how much to charge for something, right? What, how do you know how to price something? Um, And I think that a lot of times when I give people, I don't, I don't think I know, a lot of times when I tell people, well, you should probably charge this, I would say like seven times out of 10, I get the big goose egg eyes and they're just like, really? You think somebody would pay? You think it's worth that much? You think somebody would pay that? And the reality is what something is worth is not always necessarily what someone wants to pay for it. That's the reason that all price points in the world out there are going to sell because some people can afford more than others. But I think the issue there is that as artists, sometimes we forget what our time is worth and what our skill is worth because we start questioning what people are willing to pay for something instead of asking the question, what is it worth? Or Um, what we ourselves are willing to pay. Right. Right. I would never pay for that, but other people are willing to. Right. I just keep thinking about goose egg eyes. (laughs) I've never heard that before. So I'm just like, it totally makes sense. My eyes are goose egg. (laughs) So funny. Yeah. But yeah, you're, I mean, yeah, and you're right. Cause I'm the same way. Like we all at different points in our lives and, and then even just in general, we have different amounts of money that we're willing to spend. So as creative, sometimes we start thinking, like you said, about what we're willing to pay for something. And we assume that that's what everyone is willing to pay for something. And then at some point we decided, or I, and I don't say we like, I think this is correct, but I think as a general rule, a lot of people decided that if someone's not willing to pay that for it, then it must not be worth that much. And we've right. sort of equated this idea of what people want to pay to the value of something. And while I do understand, you know, supply and demand, that's not how we need to be looking at value and how we need to be looking at worth. Um What do you think about that as far as like how people internalize that? Have you noticed that? I think it's, it's one of the biggest struggles, you know, you create something and then you have to place a monetary value number on it and hope that people don't get the goose egg eyeballs and walk away or they laugh at that number or they think it's not worth that. I could just buy that at blah, blah, blah. Um, it's a it's tricky. And then how do you do that with confidence when you say the price? Because some people will price things and be like, it's eight dollars, you know, and like and how you say it. Is it is that a question? Is is this up for negotiation? Are you afraid to say that this thing is eight dollars? You know, being able to say it, it's eight dollars. Mm-hmm. And um, and being confident in what you did price and what you did make, I think is good practice. Absolutely. Do you remember the first thing that you that you sold that you had made? I think the first thing that I sold, um, my biological father brought back a huge bag. I mean, huge in my mind. I think I was in third grade. It was a huge bag of macrame like friendship bracelets from someplace he had been in Mexico. I don't know if he was in central Mexico, central America or Mexico. And so I just had a huge amount of them. And I think he gave me the idea to sell them. 
So I think I sold them for a dollar and, and they sold really well. I think, I think I've always had some sort of like little side hustle. Remember yeah. getting candy and reselling candy yeah. to kids in school. <laughs> what about the first thing you actually made yourself that you sold? Do you remember that? The first thing I made myself. Um, the first craft show that I did, I was like a brand new mom. I don't remember if I had one or two of them. <laughs> <laughs> and it was for like a church craft show. Mm -hmm. And I made chocolate covered spoons, like the plastic spoons that were dipped in gross chocolate. <laughs> it's not even chocolate. Like if you look at it, it's just like plastic with coloring. <laughs> <laughs> so these chocolate covered spoons. And then um, I think there were these washcloths that are like folded up, rolled into and glued. They were called boo-boo bunnies. And you put an ice cube in them and then you keep them in the freezer. Mm -hmm. So I made those. And um, I think that kind of started the whole process. I mean, those are just little crafty things. I think at that point I was a little too, maybe I didn't have the time to create what I really love or I just didn't know myself enough yet. Yeah. Um, but I think it started with little crafty things like that. Yeah. How did you decide what you like your prices when you were doing that? Did you have a system or were you just going with your gut? Do you remember? Oh, I've, I'm not very good at systems. <laughs> <laughs> I think I was like, uh, like two for five sounds good. Or, you know, just like came up with something in my head. Um, I know now sometimes I will look and see what other people are pricing, which is a comparison thing that can kind of make you go cuckoo too. Um, looking on Etsy, looking on Facebook Marketplace, looking at what other artists that I admire, how they price things. Um, for my portraits that I do, my paintings, I have um, a mathematical way to come up with a price. And um, that seems to work pretty well. Um, but sometimes it is hard to say, oh, this is the price. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, so, you know, for me, I have I have a course that I created because I was getting that question so much from people about mm -hmm. how do you price things. And at some point along the way, I found the formula um, that we all know, you know, that is the materials plus time times two is your wholesale cost. And then times two again is your retail price. The problem, the thing that I found, I won't say the problem with that, but the thing that I found is that a lot of people got confused with how to even come up with those initial costs. How, sure. do you, how do I value my time? How do I figure out, you know, material costs? Because if I'm paying this for it, but in theory, someone else could pay this for it, you know, how does all that work? So that was sort of the reason that I created that little micro course. And there's like a workbook and a calculating worksheet and all that kind of stuff, which is super helpful, I think, for fo folks that I've been talking to that have been using it. But the biggest question was just, well, why does it matter? You know, why, why do I care? Really? Why does anyone care how we come up with pricing, if it's right or if it's wrong? And for me, what I learned was, number one, what you've already said, just the confidence. When you understand how you came up with your price and you have confidence in the pricing, that comes across. You know, yeah. that's, you don't start, you don't question the value of what you're selling anymore because you know how you came up with the price. And especially if you are making things as a creative business owner, and this is how you make money, you understand that like there's a margin there. There's going to be a point to where you would lose money on an item. And knowing where that is allows you to have more confidence in your pricing and in what you're doing. And I think don't, um, I remember I did a sale. I did like a, I call them yard sales. It's yard and art sale in my front yard. Yeah. So I had a very large wooden treasure chest that I had painted and put a really cool mermaid transfer on it. And I'd had it for a while. It's a large size, so it's hard for most people to like, where do I store this? Um, so I had it set out and someone asked about it and I gave her a discount from the start. And I was like, why did I do that? Don't give out a discount. But like, go with your number, 
if they ask for a discount or if they ask, you know, depending on how it is, you know, in an art gallery, you're not going to say, what's your best price? But at a, at a yard sale, you would assume that there is some wiggle room. And the price that I gave her was so low, <laughs> regret it. And she was like, sold. And when something sells that fast, yeah, they know they got the better deal. <laughs> right. Absolutely. And she probably would have been willing to pay more because, I mean, I it was a really nice piece. Yeah. Anyways, that's a, a little lesson learned. And also, I don't have a large chest to have to store somewhere in my studio anymore. So that's right. good too. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. And sometimes that is the case. And I know I've had people say before, because, you know, as a general rule, I teach people not to do sales. But in the same breath, I do get that sometimes you've just got stuff that you need to move. And coming up with those creative ways to move it and knowing as long as you know your prices and at what point you are making money and at what point you're losing money and when it's worth it just to get something out of the way, you know, as long as you have an understanding of all of that, then I think whatever decision you want to make is the right decision. You know, as long as you're informed, then you do what you want to do. That's the reason that you're in business for yourself. Right. And how do you price something? Like if it's a piece of furniture that you got for free and then you're trying to add in, you know, well, how much did I pay? Well, I paid nothing for this, but I'm supposed to add this into my equation. Right. <laughs> well, I, I'm pretty skilled at getting things for free. So that gets a little tricky. <laughs> I actually, so for me personally, that's, and that is one of the things that I actually talk about in the, um, in the little course. And I say mm -hmm. that, you know, nothing, don't consider anything to be free ever. And the only reason that I say that is not because if you, if you want to pass along the discount, that's fine. But to figure out how much something is actually worth, you always have to think, OK, if I were going to recreate this and I did have to buy that piece, what would I pay for it? A million dollars. Well, <laughs> possibly. No. Yeah, so I did. Um, and so what I started coming up with for myself was as a general rule, especially when it comes to furniture hunting, um, I sort of have these, I have like a loose guideline for myself as far as how much is the most that I'm willing to pay for a certain kind of piece. Sure. And that might not necessarily be the number that I plug into my equation, but that gives me an idea in general of, okay, if I get a piece in good condition, that's, you know, a, a chest of drawers, then I know that the, in my area, the most that I really want to pay for that is going to be 75 or $80. For the most part, every now and then you pay more if it's really great. Sometimes right. if you get a lot of repairs, it's going to be less. But just as a rule, if it's in good condition, that's usually my budget. That's the most I'm willing to pay. So if I got it for free, I might plug 40 or $50 into my equation instead. But that lets me come up with a value that is so, so that there's consistency. Because that was actually, that's my next thing. After confidence, I think that using a formula like that, or at least having a guideline for yourself, allows you to have consistency in your pricing. And or, or you could say, how much is a full tank of gas? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you could. You certainly could <laughs> for going to pick it up. Absolutely. Right. <laughs> but I've just noticed that sometimes I'll notice when I go to whether it's like a vendor in my store or someone that I meet out somewhere. If I'm looking online, people who don't have any kind of a system for their pricing and they're completely pricing with their gut. Sometimes their prices start to feel like they're all over the place. Right. And when that happens. I think it can start to appear as though you don't understand the value of your stuff, which leads the customer to feel like they don't understand the value of your work. And I think that can be when it gets a little bit harder to get into maybe the prices that you should be selling, because if, if you're pricing with your gut and you create a piece, whatever it may be, and you don't love it, right? And you're feeling really self-conscious about it. And so you put a really low price tag on it because you're not using a formula. You're just pricing with your gut and you don't like it as much. So you I don't, I wouldn't say that's pricing with your gut. I would say that's pricing with your emotions. No, that's true. That's true. It's well, like going yeah. to those, um, like an old lady garage sale and she's got like the worst stuff, but everything is priced super high because she's like emotionally connected to it. Yeah. Like This is just like junk that the thrift store doesn't want, but mm -hmm. she thinks that you should, you know, pay $25 for this puzzle, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's true. Now that, now that makes sense. I guess you're right. That is more 
emotions than gut. But for some people, it's one and the same. Yes. Like knee jerk reaction to price low if they don't like it. Right. Or if they decide maybe it's not a style that they necessarily want in their home, but it's still quality and they still put a lot of time in it. And if someone else wants that style, then it's still worth that price. Yes. But I guess I just think like if you're trusting your gut, then that's like a more wisdom filled mm -hmm. uh, response than going with your emotions. Because, I mean, if I'm hungry, that I mean, that price might be lower <laughs> or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I get you. I get you. But yeah, so for me, that was the other reason that I think the formula helps, though, is because that it does give you this level of consistency. Right. So it doesn't feel so emotional. And so that it does continue to communicate that value to a customer. How and, long is your course? Oh, it's like I'm trying to remember. I timed it so I could tell people. But I want to say if you like sat down in an afternoon to take the whole thing, it might be two and a half hours, if that. Oh, cool. It's, it's, a lot yeah. of it's, um, it's a lot of spreadsheets and calculators that you can use. Um, it also comes with like a information bank so that as you come up with numbers for different things, you can store it and you don't have to recreate your work every time. Which is so the spreadsheets that I can already use. Yeah. They're, oh, all, that's they're already really calculated. cool. Everything's already plugged in. You just put you just put your prices and numbers in. And then for me, again, that's my third reason that I think pricing can be, this can be so helpful is because it, it creates time. It literally, you're creating more time for yourself because when you have, when you do develop a formula that works for you, you get your numbers right and you have all your information in one place, pricing stops being this big thing that you have to deal with. And it's just something that happens super quick. You get done with the piece, you plug your numbers in, you have your price. You don't even have to like spend all of that time being emotional and questioning you just you put the numbers in and the price is what it is and if at some point you decide you want it to be a little bit lower or a little bit higher you want to change that hourly rate a little bit i mean there's there's room to move that around it's just a guideline but um but it does make it to where you don't have to be so emotional about it and it does take a lot of i feel like i don't put as much energy into pricing anymore because i understand it and so I just do it and I keep going and it gives me more time to do the creative work and the parts of my business that I love. So that's really cool. I love efficiency and I love that your brain loves spreadsheets and you're <laughs> willing to share that with us. <laughs> I do. I think in spreadsheets, I like to have, I love to do the creative stuff. Obviously this, I don't even remember right brain and left brain. I should know this, but I'm horrible with that. Help me remember. Left brain is creative, right? And then right brain. <laughs> left brain is creative, right? <laughs> yeah, I know, right? I don't know. Anyway, anyway I, but I feel like I'm kind of a little more balanced because I love to do the creative stuff and not have to be in a box and just try stuff and see what works. But yeah. When it comes to like numbers and things like that, I like a spreadsheet. I like my numbers in front of me. I like to understand, you know, I just... I like, I like the check boxes when it comes to numbers. So. Well, that's really great. You have that accounting background. I do not yeah. have that superpower. Yeah. That is, I, that tell you all the time. I, I enjoyed my time working in accounting, but every day running a small business, I'm so grateful for the years that I spent doing that work because I do, you know, as creative business owners, that's not the first place our brain goes. But having that background does make it a lot easier to make decisions. And it takes some of the emotion out of it because I know that it's not emotional. You know, it can't be. So you can get your funds so you can have more fun. Exactly. Exactly. Bam. Bam. <laughs> so as you've been doing this, because like you said, you've always had the side hustle. You've always had the little things that you've done to make money. And I've been the same way. But has there been any piece of advice or just, you know, nugget of information that you've gotten somewhere along the way that has really helped you shape your mindset around pricing? I think because I have hung out with so many artists and did craft shows for so long. Um, and I, you know, gravitated towards people that were encouraging about sharing how they come up with pricing or why they price a certain way. 
you kind of see like sometimes, you know, artwork, which I would never pay for, the price is so high. And it's kind of fascinating because there's a perceived value attached to it as well. Because if you price too low, people don't think it's worth it sometimes. Yep. You know, you just are trying to like clear stuff out or whatever, and it's priced too low. And people are like, well, I guess that means it's not that good. And if it's priced too high, there's a specific market for that. So you have to be ready to seek out those kind of customers that can afford a higher price. I like to have... I like to have um, a variety of prices. I want everyone to be able to afford art. So, you know, there could be like entry level and anyone can afford the small little item and they feel good about supporting a local artist. And then there are people that may be a collector and they have extra money to support local artists and pay for a bigger piece. So I like to have that that whole spectrum. Yeah. Um, because I guess I just want to be friends with everybody, <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it doesn't feel good to go for myself. You know, when I've gone to a gallery or something and I'm like, wow, there's like absolutely nothing I can afford in here. That's really cool. Thanks for <laughs> having air conditioning on for free. Um, so that's just something that I keep in mind and maybe someday, <clears throat> no, I think I'll always have a variety of price points. I don't think I'll ever be just so highbrow art that you can only afford the air conditioning. <laughs> that's funny. Yeah, that's good. Well, I, and you know, I think that that's just true in general, especially if when you're selling in a retail space where you have the public coming in, you know, you have to have something for everybody. Um, now, depending on the circumstances, that's something for everybody doesn't necessarily have to be your product. You know, in my case, when they come into my store, it's my store and I want to make sure I've got something for everybody. But, you know, for other artists and other makers that might be listening, you know, if the thing that you make is a higher price point, it's OK if you don't offer something in every single price range. Because if it's not what you do, then your time is not going to be best spent trying to come up with those lower price points. But if it is something that you do and it's something that you can, you know, make happen, then I absolutely think that that is that is, a you know, it's going to help you. I, we, we call them rent makers in our shop for the folks who have the high price items or maybe people who only work on like large pieces of furniture for the most part. You know, they might do these small little signs or pieces of art or like, you know, you've got some extra paint left over and oh, here's some scrap wood. So let me paint a really fun sign out of salvage materials that I can offer, you know, for twenty five or thirty dollars so that. I can sell enough of something to pay my rent this month if I don't have someone come in looking for one of my high price pieces. Because when, you know, depending on where you live, you might not sell a super high price item every single month, especially when you're first getting started. Right. So having the multiple price points definitely helps, I think. But at the same time, I, you know, I tell people a lot, if you don't make lower price items, don't force yourself to do it. Just remember that you've got to look for the, you've, you're advertising to a different audience when you keep trying to sell stuff. Like I've had that issue personally in the past year, you know, the first 10 years of, of my making and creative career, I don't think I had much of anything that cost more than 50 or $60. And now I'm creating these huge pieces of art, you know, that are 10 times that and more. And so it's a different audience. It's a different customer buying my candles and jewelry than is buying my big pieces of art and just taking that into account and realizing that I'm having to make a shift and look for a different audience. You know, what's it's the highest priced art piece you've sold. Oh gosh, that's a really great question. So I sold a couple of big pieces this past weekend, but they were oh, bragger, bragger. I know, I know, right? <laughs> but it was it was to family, and so I did discount them. And I can't remember because it was like a bundle situation where they were buying multiple things. So I can't remember like what one piece would have cost. Um, okay. I think the highest priced item that I have sold outside of that was six six hundred in that range. It was somewhere around there. It was, it was around the $600 mark. 
Was that um, one of your mixed media weaving? It was. It was a mixed media weaving. Mm -hmm. It was actually the one that I created for the Turquoise Iris Journal back in oh, yes. this year. Yeah. So, um, so the one named after me is still available? It is. It is still oh, good. available. It is actually hanging on a wall in an office space right now. It is on display in a friend's office. Um, oh, cool. I think it should be on display in my office. In your office. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we should work on that. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, having the different things out there. And that was something that I tried at first was like, okay, I'm going to make these smaller pieces to try to sell. But the reality is with something like that, with the weavings, the time that goes into it, even the small pieces are more expensive. Just sure. because the time that goes into the piece. And yes. so I kind of decided, you know, I don't know that that's a good use of my time because I can make, you know, I can try to make a dozen small pieces so that I can sell them at this lower price point. But there's still a high enough price that I don't know that since they're that small, I'm going to sell them. So my time is actually better spent doing other things. And a lot of that just comes with time. So people have to get used to their businesses and their customers and what's going to work for them. Right. You know, there's, no wisdom like the wisdom we learn with trial and error. But um, I have this fun idea about because, you know, I like to do miniature art pieces. Mm -hmm. Like two by three inches. And so I want to paint a two by three inch and then frame it in like a giant frame, like really like a huge frame <laughs> and then put like a super high price on it because that just yeah. sounds fun to me. Yeah, <laughs> that does sound like a lot of fun, actually. <laughs> I could see that. And you'd be like, yep, that's just, that's negative space. That's what we call negative space. Yeah. To really draw attention to all the detail in this tiny piece of art. I mean, the frame could be super ornate, too, in, yeah. in its own way. But I just, I just think that'd be really fun in a gallery. <laughs> yeah, it would be. It would be. That is I think the most expensive art piece that I sold was a piece that I still have. <laughs> what? <laughs> How did that work? I was working. So I have illustrated a book before. Okay. And this author was doing her second book or third book. And so she had asked me to do the cover art. So we got together. We talked about you know, what it would look like. And it was going to be two art pieces that were going to be painted and then they would be scanned and that would be the cover art for the book. And what I regret was not getting a signed contract because after I completed it, the author changed her mind. Oh, wow. And wanted to offer me less than what we had agreed upon. I see. And because I hadn't had a contract um, and I didn't feel like going to battle over it, I took less for it. But I still got paid quite a bit of money and I still have the art piece. So <laughs> all right, that's kind of cool, though. So what do I do with it? I, I don't know. That's cool though. That is cool. So it's published. So your art is published. The first, yeah, the first book, the second book, she went with a different direction. I see. I gotcha. I gotcha. Yeah. The first book was really cool. Um, it's basically, it's for essential oils and it's different recipes, but each mm -hmm. recipe has its own page. So it kind of is like a coloring book slash essential oil journal. And um, I just challenged myself to just do like pen and ink on them and not use, it was just my own challenge, not to use a pencil. Okay. <laughs> so I could, er I didn't erase anything. I just went with it and it's very, it's very whimsical, but it was, it was a fun book to do. Yeah. I bet that sounds like a lot of fun. That sounds like a lot of fun. And I think that goes to show too, because like you were saying, you wish you'd had a contract um, and that was a lesson learned. I'm sure you won't do that again, you know, without something in writing. But another thing, you know, 
the reason that you walked away from that with kind of a, a not great feeling in, in, in your, in yourself was that you knew that you were worth more than that. And I think that that is a battle that a lot of artists and creatives are still facing is understanding that this may have started as a hobby for a lot of us, whatever it is that we do, whether we are artists or jewelry designers or candle makers or soap makers or woodworkers, you know, something that started out as a hobby for fun where we were spending money to do something that we loved. Right. At some point it changed to a business where now we are putting in our time and energy and selling a product to someone else that has value and knowing what that is worth and recognizing that we're no longer just doing this for fun. Yes, it's fun and we love it in the same way that a teacher might love their job and love working with kids, but that doesn't mean they can afford to do it for free every day. Mm -hmm. So when you make that shift from going from what was a hobby, which you went into knowing it was going to cost you money because you were doing it for free and it was nothing but an act of self-care to take care of yourself to now making this transition into, okay, this is, this is my livelihood. So I may love what I'm doing, but I have to be able to support myself. Um, and even if it's a part-time job, the point would still be to make money. So making that transition and not beating ourselves up for it and recognizing that there is value to our time and value to our skill, you know, there, there should be a point at which we recognize that we are not required to give all of our time and energy away for free, no matter how much we love doing what we do. Um, and I know a lot of creatives struggle with that. They're like, oh, but this is a gift and I'm supposed to share it. And, and if they don't make any money, they're like, well, that's okay. It's just a hobby. I'm not feeding myself. But some of us, we are. We're putting groceries on the table with this money. So I think recognizing that there is value in that skill and there is a good reason for coming up with a system that allows you to pay yourself. Um, I just think that that's something that a lot of creatives still struggle with, especially when they're making that shift. And for me, most yeah, I, I think definitely when you're making that shift, you know, I... I've seen people who just do it for fun as a side hobby, but they're still putting a price on it. And I've noticed sometimes the price is super low. Yeah. Like they are not paying themselves at all. Yeah. At all. And I'm like, this doesn't even cover the cost of the supplies that you used. It doesn't make sense to me. And it makes me wonder, is it because they're afraid to step into what they may actually be worth? Or is it they don't want to make someone feel bad, so they keep the price down low, but then you're making yourself feel bad, in my mind. Yeah. And then the other idea I had was, okay, so you paint this item, and I paint this item, and I have this as a business, but you're charging like a third. It, it brings down the cost of it almost makes artwork seem less important when it's priced that low as well. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And that's something that I know for me personally that I've done before. There have been things that I have done that I've created or made and kind of done on a whim almost just trying something new. And then I decided not to stick with it. Right. I was mm -hmm. like, okay, well, I was just trying this out, but I want to sell it because I've got it and it's valuable. I'm just not going to keep doing it. And sometimes when you have those one-off pieces, you just want to let it go for next to nothing. But I've got this rule for myself. If I'm going to put it in my store next to the artwork and, you know, the, the made goods of other people, I'm going to price it where it should be for what it's worth because I'm not willing to risk bringing down someone else's price because I'm pricing too low. Sure. And and, but that is one of those things that I have the, um, I guess, good fortune of being on this side of things and understanding that by pricing it low just because I want to move it, that's what I could be doing. I could be hurting another maker's ability to make money, um, which is not ever what I intend to do. And I don't think it's what other people intend to do, but I think you're right. There's there's an element of I hear people use the word just a lot. Well, yeah. this is just a hobby. 
or right. this is just something I do for fun. And it's almost like they use it as a qualifier and they feel like they're basically justify. Yeah, they're justify. Exactly. They're justifying um, offering this for sale. Oh, I just do this for fun. I'm just trying to make back some money for the supplies. I'm not actually trying to make money on this. But then the question is, well, why not? I'm just telling you how I see myself. Yes. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so it's one of those things where it's like, you know, it. I think as a as a community of artists and makers, we we try really hard to lift each other up and share the fact that we see what each other is worth. But when you've got someone who's first stepping into that world and you're comparing yourselves, like you said, you're looking at what everybody else does and you're going, oh, well, my stuff's not as good as hers. I can't possibly charge what she charges. Mm -hmm. Well, in your opinion, it might not be as good as someone else's work. But, you know, it's like they say, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And with art, you know, just because you like someone else's work better than you like your own doesn't mean that you might not be someone's favorite artist. And there's there's a lot right. of power when you recognize that and when you learn that, like, OK, maybe I'm not quite ready to step into the idea of being a recognized artist that charges three and four times what everyone else does for their work simply because of demand. And that's OK, too, because, of course, as your time fills up and you don't have time to fill all the orders you're getting, then of course your prices have to go up. You're, you know, no one is required to work themselves to the bone for free. And at some point you have to figure out how to get the flow of orders coming in at a level that you can maintain. And your options are to raise your prices until that, that flow becomes what you need it to be. Or to go, nope, these are my prices. I guess I'm just going to be in demand and figure out where your cutoffs are. But either way, everyone has to look out for their own, you know, mental health <laughs> and physical health. I mean, you can't run yourself ragged. But even at that, there's there's like this minimum. And that's a conversation. So next week, you're going to hear, um, guys, you're going to hear my interview with Kami um, from Montrevert Creative. And... So Kami Collins, she is a, she's a, she, she does a lot of really great things. She's an artist too, but she's not selling her art. She is a creative. She's a copywriter. She is a mindset coach and she's really, really good at what she does. And she one of the things is. she talks about is that there's no, she and I had a conversation about pricing. And of course, at some point, if you think something is worth something, then that's what you go with which is absolutely true. So for me, this pricing formula, I was not used to people who knew I, I was, I created this pricing formula in this course, the perfect price prescription for people who were kind of consistently undervaluing their work to give them a pricing guide, to try to help them understand there's a minimum value for what you do. What, what did it take for you to start valuing your own work? What was that um, moment that you realized, okay, I need to do this differently? I got, it was, it was a money thing. It was when I realized that I was, <laughs> I was essentially giving things away and I didn't realize it because I was putting a price on it. So I thought, well, I'm making money, right? I'm selling a lot of stuff, but I was at one point I was making candles. It was, it was after I started making candles because jewelry, you know, I did okay with, I would sell a lot of it. But even just like comparing to other people's prices, I was doing OK. But when I started making candles, I noticed that I was selling an awful lot of candles and I didn't seem to really be making any money. And okay. so that was when I started really doing the math and figuring out what it actually cost me to make a candle. And I realized that I was basically selling my candles for the cost of materials and I was selling so many that I could hardly keep my shelves stocked. Oh, wow. So I was losing a lot of time and actually not making any money. Um, and I was paying rent on a space. Um, this was before I was a partner at Vintage Warehouse and I was just a vendor paying rent. And so I was paying rent for a space and yet I wasn't charging enough for my candles to really even cover all of the materials in my time, much less actually make any money. 
So that's when I started using this formula and I had to I had to work my way up with my pricing because when I figured out what I should be charging with for my candles, I was only charging like half of that, sometimes less. And so it was a process to get the price up where it needed to be. And yeah, I think the, the whole thing is a process. Yeah. You know, learning your craft is a process. Yeah. Learning how to post on social media is a process. Mm -hmm. And and being gentle and graceful with ourselves as we do that is a process. But I think it's worth evaluating and worth figuring out what your worth is. And sometimes even if you price something and it doesn't sell, that doesn't equal that you're not worthy either. Mm -hmm. Just it just hasn't found the right home yet. That's right. Exactly. And that was kind of um, that was kind of where I was that it was like, OK, when I did the math and I realized I needed to raise my prices so much, it was like, well, I can't do that overnight. People can't come into the store tomorrow and go to buy a candle. And it literally costs twice as much as it used to with no explanation. You know, so I kind of had to grow the pricing over a little while. But once I got it where it needed to be, I noticed that the amount of candles I was selling was it was something I could now keep up with. You know, it became so that was that was a sort of a very hands on lesson for me with supply and demand and how that whole process works. And um, and yeah, and it was just one of those things where it was like, OK, I get it now. And once I understood it really kind of made me passionate about it to try to explain to other makers and artists, there is a minimum here. You know, there is a minimum value for what you're doing. And if you sell for less than that, you're hurting other makers and artists, right? Because it starts to look like, well, if this person can afford to sell that candle for $10, why am I paying 25 for it over here? And what ultimately happens is really creative, really talented people put themselves out of business because they're selling their stuff for too low. And they mm -hmm. burn out and they can't do it anymore. Sure. So, you know, and that's just kind of what I've learned. So I've sort of been putting that out there, even to the point that, you know, oh gosh, how long ago was that now? Four, five, four years ago, I guess, when I decided when I went to working for myself full time. That was when, too, I was like, OK, there's there's a system here. And when you want to be your own boss, to be a creative making a schedule for yourself, you have to understand your numbers because the only way you can replace a full-time income is with a full-time income. So right. how do you make that happen? Because your revenue, your total sales, that's not your income. <laughs> There's a lot of time and money that goes into making that happen. So I did, I spent a lot of time using the accounting knowledge that I had gained in my four years in that office to really putting that together. And honestly, the, the course that I put out, which is opening up again this fall, but Maker's Mill, that was what that was kind of about was especially for people who whether they wanted it to just be like part time income or they wanted to eventually get into a full time job with it. It was trying to help make the numbers easier and help people figure out how to grow a business and make it something that could support them full time. And right. understanding that if something's not selling, it actually probably has nothing to do with the price and nothing to do with the quality of the item. There's all these other areas in business that you have to troubleshoot and sort of helping take people through that step by step so that they could build the business to create the life that they wanted. Because all of the reason we work for ourselves is because there's a certain life that we want, right? There's certain things we want to do with our time. That's, that's why we're doing it. So, so anyway, I got, I did, I got pretty passionate about it once I figured it out because it made such a difference for me made such a difference in my business, just in my, I don't know, my perception of myself and my time and what I was and wasn't entitled to do for other people. How and much is this course that you offer? Um, so it is actually changing a little bit. It's going to be, I, I don't even want to say the price out loud because I'm still upgrading it. So the Ooh. price is changing. So when I, it's going to be August, it'll be August 1st when the next course will start. So it will actually go on sale mid July if people want to get in to this round of the course and it'll be a three month program. It'll start August 1st. Um, a three month program. Oh, that's really neat. Yeah. So if someone doesn't want to get on the wait list, it's just joinmakersmill.com and it'll, it'll still sign up to get you on the wait list so that you get all the information. But I, like I said, I put it out. The it, This was the first iteration of the course that went out last August. Mm -hmm. And I learned a lot that first time around. And I've learned a lot even since then about how to make it better. 
So that's something that I'm working on this summer and getting this podcast started to really get all my thoughts together and make it better. And we'll be doing it again in August. But now the perfect price prescription, which is just the micro course on pricing, that's available now. And, and how much is that one? That one is $27 right now. It's usually $27. <laughs> yeah, it's usually $37, but I have it um, $27 right now as we're is doing Is that valuing yourself to price it at $27? <laughs> it is, though. It is. And the reason I do, people tell me that all the time. They're like, um, aren't you teaching people not to put things on sale? And I'm like, look. <laughs> Courses are just a little bit different. Courses are different because <laughs> you've, different. you've created it and now it's watching a replay. Right. But it's that's really little... valuable information that you're sharing. And right. if we learn to price things in a better way, those $27 will come back to us so quick. Because 100%. And so we'll, we'll know exactly what we're doing instead of just um going, um, $8. Exactly. <laughs> Feeling around in the dark. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, and with courses too, uh, someone said that to me one time and I was like, it's the equivalent of an artist that creates this gorgeous piece of art and then they create prints. The prints can be a lot less because once the creation is done, the reproductions don't have to cost as much. So that's the way to, that's kind of the way to look at courses. When you look at something that it says it's worth, you know, a couple hundred dollars and they're selling it for 50 it's because they can sell it more than once that they are able to do that. Um, right. So, you know, it's, it's not exactly the same as pricing a handmade product. They're very, very valuable. And like you said, you get your money. If you use these programs, you get your money back and then some, but, um, but it is a different pricing system. So it is funny when I sit here and I talk about pricing and then I give a price like that for a course. No, I'm just teasing you. Just say <laughs> I'm teasing you. I know, but you're not the first person to say it. <laughs> so, so, yeah, but yeah, I'm looking forward to the rest of this month and talking to everyone and getting their insights on pricing and, and mindset for how they value their work and their time. It's so interesting to hear how everybody, how everybody else, you know, how they do the thing, right? Yeah, totally. That makes sense to me. And hopefully to others. <laughs> yeah. So, Crystal, tell yes. us a funny story. Wrap, wrap us up with a funny story. You and I do a lot of rapid fire questions. So we, we've kind of run through. And our I'm story. not very good at them. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, no. Oh, yes. Yes. I know yes. what we should tell everyone. Yes. You can tell us. Oh, okay. So m one of my things that I do for my own um, meditating is go to thrift stores. <laughs> um, so I was on a girls weekend uh, last month, this month. Anyways, <laughs> this season of my life. A couple of weeks ago, I was in uh, central, the central coast of California. I was in Morro Bay and a nice little coastal town. They're known for this giant rock that's like on the beach. And I love going thrift store shopping. And so I was with my girlfriends and we went into this really hoardy thrift store. <laughs> um, I, I'm not sure. I, I would say it's a thrift store, but it seems like this guy may, may buy out like estates, you know? Yeah. So everything was like piled to the ceiling. Yeah. All sorts of things. So there's this one bin that I found and it had, um, it had a funny sign. It says, don't like your family, pick a new one here. Mm -hmm. Photos, 50 cents each. So I'm looking in these bins of photos and I'm kind of drawn to black and white photos. I, I find them interesting. And I pull out a couple and I look at one and it's like a military man. And it has the name on it. And it's my friend Danielle's last name, which I know is her married name. I really don't know how to say your name right. Because sometimes I feel like you drop out some of the letters. It's Kaminsky. 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 Okay. Um, so it had so-and-so Kaminsky on it. And I took a little video and I was like, oh, that'd be so weird if like 
it's like a long lost photo, family, friend, person. So I send you the video and you're like, oh, that's cool. I'll ask my husband's family about it. And I thought that was just it. And yep. then what happened? And then a couple weeks later on Mother's Day, we are having a video conversation with my in-laws and talking about, you know, life and catching up with each other because we haven't been able to see each other in a little while. And um, while we're talking, I'm like, oh, yeah, let me show you something. So I pull my phone up and I pull that picture up. And I hold it up to the camera on our computer and I'm just talking to my father-in-law and I'm like, is this possibly, I said, are you related to a Francis Kaminsky? And I'm showing him the picture and he's like, yeah, it's Uncle Frank. It's Uncle Frank. It's Uncle Frank. <laughs> okay. Now for our lovely listeners, how, how did that even happen? Okay. So I'm in California. You live in South Carolina. Wow. Your husband's family is from where? It's from Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. Yeah. How did a picture of Uncle Frank end up in some dodgy thrift store in the central coast of California? I have no did idea. Nobody like Uncle Frank? Yeah, no, everyone liked Uncle Frank just fine. Well, exactly somebody didn't fine. like him enough to get rid of his photos. I know, right? Well, I tell you, so he was in the army, and mm -hmm. so that was one of his pictures from when he was in the army. And yes. I think he was deployed out on that side of the country at some point. So perhaps that is how the picture ended up out there. And who knows? Who knows? Did he have a secret lover? I have no idea. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know a lot about Uncle Frank's personal life, but I just, it was. It was so funny. And when he did say, yeah, that's Uncle Frank, it was just like, what? <laughs> what? I love Small it. World. I love it. And unfortunately, I didn't, I wasn't able to go back to the said thrift store to retrieve Uncle Frank. So he just sits there waiting for someone else to claim him as family. Yep, yep. <laughs> so yeah, that was fun. That was a lot of fun. So that was something cool that happened with us this past month, so. Yeah, just I just love how we're all connected, you mm -hmm. know, and even though you're all the way over there, far <laughs> away, and I'm over here, I just feel like, you know, there's like these emotional strings of attachment that we all have especially, you know, as our community is growing. And it's just those little things remind us of the beauty of that. Yep. But, well, you guys, thank you for hanging out with us again this week. We would love to hear what you think um, about having a pricing guide and how you, anything that you may have learned over the years that has helped you value your time and, you know, work on your mindset around how you price your items. Um, you can always join us in the Facebook community. You'll always find that linked up in the show notes. And we would love to hear your thoughts. A penny for your thoughts. A penny for your thoughts. They're worth more than that. They're I worth a lot more than that. that. <laughs> <laughs> you change that saying. Yep, there you go. There you, According there you go. to my pricing guide, my thoughts <laughs> are worth. That's right. Well, thanks, you guys. And we will catch you next week for another episode of Maker's Chat. Ciao. Love ya. That's all for today's episode. Thank you for joining us. Remember to check out the Makers Chat community so you can dive deeper into the conversation. You'll find the link to join in our show notes. Have a beautiful week and we will chat again soon.